0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: This episode is brought to you by Samuel Adams, Brewing the American Dream hear stories from their inspiring entrepreneurs on Let's Talk About Food wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit RT11.com.
2: Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Amy Trubeck. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our summer 2022 issue, now available online and in hard copy, explores the themes of borders and boundaries, featuring articles on migrant experiences, food imaginaries, and the practices of provisioning through raising food and preserving it. Join us as we talk with authors and subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. So we're really lucky today to have as our guest, Jennifer Dueck. Uh Hello, Jennifer. Hello. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Amy. Uh, yes, I'm looking forward to our conversation um, and welcome to the show. So, just to start, can you briefly uh, tell the uh, Gastronomica podcast listeners about uh, what you do uh, and where you live?
3: Sure. Well, my background is in Middle Eastern history. I am um, I am right now speaking from Winnipeg, Canada, where I teach at the University of Manitoba. Um, And uh, I became uh, when I went off to do my doctoral work, I became a historian of the Middle East. And my early work really had nothing to do with cooking and food. It dealt with the cultural politics of Syria and Lebanon under French rule in the 1930s and 40s. but a few years ago, I, I I I took a turn towards the culinary, and uh, that's one of the reasons that I'm here today.
2: So um, yes, that that's that's a little bit about me. That's great. Um, so you are from out far western Canada, um, a place that I'm hoping to visit to someday uh, for sure. Um, Well, let's talk a little bit about the article that you wrote for Gastronomica, which is uh, Seeing Mediterranean, How Food Journalists Reimagined the Middle East and North Africa in the 20th century United States. And in this really fascinating article, you highlight the emerging interest in Mediterranean cuisine by American food journalists starting in the 1960s and 70s. And as you just pointed out, you're trained as a historian um, of the Middle East. And and particularly, I know you've been very interested in in politics. And so I wonder what drew you to this multi-layered examination of newspaper food columns, cookbooks, and nutrition studies. Um, And as you answer that question, I'd also love to know what drew you to this particular period in history.
3: Sure, thanks. So I think one of the things that drew me to talking about food, uh, as I said, my earlier work, a lot about culture and the intersection between culture and politics. Um, but I was really looking for ways to think about uh, and, and and to sort of live the embodied self and that talking about food, writing about food was a way of bringing the physical embodied self into, you know, my work as an academic, but also into, uh, you know, our understanding of the political and social histories that shape our world. And as a historian of the Middle East, one of the one of the figures that comes often to mind is the Egyptian novelist Naguib Mahfouz, um, whose first uh, whose first book in the well known Cairo trilogy is called Palace Walk, and it's set in the in the, in the latter years of the First World War leading to the Egyptian Revolution. And he describes in very significant detail the daily rituals of food preparation and consumption um, within the domestic life of the home. And you get this very strong sense, one of the things I like about that novel and find it particularly evocative and compelling is, it, is that it really fully um, represents people as their embodied selves, their physical needs for for sleep, for for sex, for food, and that all of that comes into the the it sort of is a very central feature of that novel, and from the perspective of Middle Eastern history, which is, you know, sometimes from the from the North American perspective, the Middle East is seen as this sort of very you know exceptionalized space of. You know, political and military conflict, and sort of hermetically sealed away this sort of trouble bubble off there. You know, um, that bringing the stories and bringing the history to the level of daily life and the embodied self in daily life was uh, represented a really fruitful way forward. So that's, I guess that's 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 the beginning of an answer to you know why food and you know, why food in, in North America, sort of uh, Middle Eastern food, but in North America. I was interested in sort of, uh, you know, breaking, you know, incorporating the diaspora into the understanding, which there's a, a lot of colleagues of mine and scholars have been doing really great work to draw out the significance of the diaspora in understanding the history of the Middle East. So so looking at this in diaspora. So that that's, you know, one part of the answer of of what drew me to this more general project of 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 Middle Eastern and North African foods, particularly as experienced in North America. I can say a little bit more about uh, you know this world of food of journalists and writers, which you asked about. So that yes, this this world of 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 food journalists and food writers, and that's that's not the only part. This this article is part of a larger project. So, the, um, but the the food journalists and the food writers, I I sort of zeroed in on them for uh, in this uh, as part of this project because I was very interested in locating. Stories of food. That um, uh, uh, looking for narratives about you know what we eat, where the ingredients come from, and and how those narratives shape our sense of who we are in the world. Um, there's the, the famous quote from Bria Savarin, the 19th century French lawyer and politician, tell me what you eat, I will tell you what you are. This is quoted by many scholars in food studies. And of course, many scholars talk about the eating part of that. Okay, you know, how what eating says about what you are. I'm interested in the telling part that's in that quote, that tell me what you eat and i will tell you what you are i would think of that as storytelling and 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 you know i would i my 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 own emphasis is really on the storytelling that that quote contains and i wanted to find stories that entered various public and social domains in in the united states about middle eastern and north african foods and i wanted to see what those stories said about who belongs and who doesn't belong and, and of course, this is a continuum. So what are the ways in which people belong sometimes and don't belong sometimes? And how is that belonging and non-belonging articulated? Uh, so, you know, in in this, um, so again, that's the interest in storytelling now. As I began investigating this question, one curious thing was this to get to get to the topic of this article, the Mediterranean cuisine and the way Mediterranean cuisine became a thing uh, in the press. It became a fad. Uh, um, it was referred to you know, by journalists as this great sexy food fad. Um, and and yet, as I was sort of observing this, I was curious about where is the The Middle East and North Africa in this Mediterranean food fad that's growing up, that's bubbling up. And um, in an article in the 1990s, uh, Molly O'Neill, the food writer Molly O'Neill, quoted Warren Belasco's comment that to Americans, the term Mediterranean almost automatically means Italy. And that was a phenomenon that I was certainly running into that. OK, maybe we can throw in, you know, Provence in the south of France and maybe also Greece sometimes. But basically, where was the Middle East and North Africa in this story and in this in this conception of the Mediterranean? And right back to the to the 1950s, when Elizabeth David published it, you know, begins to publish her foundational work on the Mediterranean this, I had this question of where is the Middle East and North Africa in this story? And um, I wanted to understand how the Middle East and North Africa, you know, were sort of erased from the Mediterranean, and how they also became to be included in ways that created points of opportunity. So we have points of erasure, the Middle East and North Africa get erased within this Mediterranean, but also how there are opportunities that emerge from the growth in popularity about the Mediterranean.
2: Yeah, I I'm um yeah I find that the way that you sort of uh, open up the set of assumptions by the food journalists of different types in this period and their fascination or uh with Italy, uh France and Spain in a sense primarily as they are understanding of the Mediterranean it's it's such an important point and it's it's also about how we're how when people make decisions about what they want to focus on with food, they can be very selective about the, how they understand the relationship of food to geography or to place and then how that works with identity. And um, so I think that it's, you know, as somebody, you came into this understanding the Mediterranean in a completely different way than the people that you're studying. Um, so you can see things that, um, you know, for example, I was, uh, trained very much to think about France and the Mediterranean relationship to the European Southern Europe more than North Africa or, uh, the Middle East. So I think it's such a great, um, I guess you're a great interlocutor into this particular area of culinary history, and so given that, I did want to. I think the uh, the audience would be very interested in the way in which you're sort saying that the concept of the culinary Mediterranean that emerges through these dominant food writers, including people like Craig Claiborne and Claudia Roden and others, that they. they've constructed a particular geography, or they've decided to focus on certain elements of the geography. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about, for someone like you, when you were reading these, did you see the absence, like, how do you read people who you, as a scholar of the whole region, in a sense, is saying, wait, what's happening here? Um, Like, how do you read their voices? How do you read the way they analyze or explain this concept of the culinary Mediterranean?
3: Sure, thanks. Um, so um, I think one place to start in thinking about that, and I, I, I hear that, you know, first as a question about erasures, and I do want to, you know, I'm sure we'll come to the opportunities that arise as well. But one of the, you know, one of the, the, the key sort of um, influencers and really really the creator without whom, you know, the Mediterranean diet in its nutritional guise You know, without whom it doesn't happen is uh, a man named Ansel Keys, who's a nutrition scientist. And you know, you know about this, and I'm I'm sure many of the listeners know about this. And he and his wife, um, Margaret Keys, uh, you know, had traveled in Italy, and so their experience was largely European. And they, you know, noticed these interesting things about the lower rates of heart disease, and. uh, you know, this initiated, uh, you know, scientific studies about this. And one of the, 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 you know, the sort of popularizing outcome of their study was their cookbook, which they first published in the late 1950s, Eat Well and Stay Well, which in the 1970s came out in a second edition, Eat Well and Stay Well, The Mediterranean Way. Now, th- because they were the foundational sort of scientific researchers. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, they've been sort of, th- that book has been sort of cited as the sort of first in the sort of genre of heart healthy cookbooks. But they explicitly excluded uh, the Middle East and North Africa. So it wasn't just that they left them out and didn't talk about the Middle East and North Africa, they explicitly said, for our purposes, the Mediterranean does not include the Middle East and North Africa. And they give this sort of very tiny little, they just don't fit in, it's not the same cuisine, and they just leave them out. Um, yet they use this label Mediterranean, and in the, that label in, you know, in the second edition of their book is, is right there in the title. Um, now I think we can look at you know someone like Elizabeth David who uh, you know came out of a British context. She 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 you know a, a lot of her culinary interest you know comes really from um, uh, you know the European context. She does talk about her time in Egypt. I mean she's quite an she speaks enthusiastically in her essays about uh you know time uh during the second world war that she spent in Egypt. And so she has a few recipes. She's she is not, unlike the Keys, she is not trying to exclude uh the the Middle East and North Africa. So she I think is more uh I want to say respectful of 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 the lacuna in her in her own writing. And and she actually works hard. I mean she adds an addendum in one of her cookbooks to Uh, to say, hey, you know what, I don't have a lot about the Middle East and North Africa, but go look at my friend Claudia Roden's cookbook, because it's really great on this subject. So she's, she's got this, uh, she's an, you know, an enthusiast. And she's also got some awareness of this absence. Um, And so although she herself is, is, is not primarily, you know, filling that in, she is trying to point her readers towards others who are filling that in. And I think one of the constants so the you know the 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 Mediterranean that is, I mean, especially this nutritionally based Mediterranean where, you know, a lot of the language that describes it is really, you know, it's not about culture at all. It's all about nutrition and, you know um, you know, serum cholesterol. And it's 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 not a, a sensuous um delicious cuisine. It's all about, you know, avoiding health, you know, avoiding uh, heart disease. Um, and some of the erasures that happen that I think are costly. Um, I mean, it's worth maybe noticing what are some of these erasures that, you know, that there's kind of a broad scale homogenization of, of the region that, you know, okay, we're so focused on health, that we strip away all the differences in language and ethnicity, in, uh, you know, regional landscape um, and 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 so i think that those are costly absences as we think about a region and those absences um uh are, are 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 kind of uh reified especially by the way i think that the keys you know sort of launch this um uh you know their their project of this mediterranean diet
2: yeah i there, i think that one thing that you are pointing out in a lot of really interesting ways in this piece is when a cuisine becomes part of a transactional sort of enterprise, either through, let's say, promoting or selling cookbooks for American Americans or pr- selling or promoting certain kinds of nutrition a- a- approaches to diet, That that place becomes you know, I think people like they decide what part of this place or this geography is worth focusing on. And, and then, you know, so much gets missed along the way. So I think it's a really great uh, point you're making. So here I'm going to take a, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back in just a minute.
1: This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit RT11.com. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying voices from all across our food system. Today, I'm asking listeners to take part in our summer membership drive by helping sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, you can receive some great HRN swag, including the HRN cap, wine carrier, or a special spice set from Burlap and Barrel. By becoming a member, you'll play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. Thank you for your support.
2: I'm Louisa Kasdan, host of Let's Talk About Food. I recently hosted an exciting live podcast event in Boston and interviewed incredible women entrepreneurs who have received small business coaching from the Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program. When I was applying to law school and I got in, I said, you know what? I'm still young. Let me pivot and go into the food industry and really follow my passion. I was kind of it was a new thing to me. It was like, hey, I don't want me in the newspaper. I just want to be in my room, in my house. <laughs> so that was when I'm like, okay, now that I'm in the local newspaper, I better not disappoint the people that, you know, that have this belief in me. And on the days that you're tired
1: or you feel defeated, just keep going. And 10 people might tell you no, but that doesn't mean that's your end result. You just have to keep going.
0: Hear their stories
2: on Let's Talk About Food, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again to Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream for supporting this episode. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Amy Trubeck talking with historian Jennifer Dueck about her new article, Seeing Mediterranean How Food Journalists Reimagined the Middle East and North Africa in the 20th Century United States, and now available in issue 22.2 of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. So, Jennifer, um, Let's get more specific. Uh, and you you pointed out in the beginning of this interview that one of the reasons you were drawn to food um, as a way of doing scholarship and even thinking about a place as complex as the Mediterranean region was because it would allow you um, to consider people's everyday lives and their embodied experiences. Um, and so let's talk specifically about one of the foods that you talk about in this article that I I found so fascinating and something I've certainly thought about over the years, which is the embrace of couscous by first the mainstream American press and then second by bourgeois American cooks. And um, as a scholar of the Mideast, what what frustrates you and what excites you about the ways that couscous is a represented and then absorbed into uh, the American everyday diet, which it really effectively has. It's quite, if you want to think about a food traveling and then becoming, in a sense, institutionalized in another culture, I would say couscous has really won a a gold star on that one. Um, So what do you think about couscous?
3: I I agree with you that couscous is a poster child for a kind of a food that was... um, I mean, really highly exotic and, you know, exoticized and ethnicized that became completely um, absorbed. You know, it's a, you know, you can stuff your Thanksgiving turkey with couscous and it's completely removed from it. You know, the fact that it, you know, comes from North Africa is, you know, uh, uh, by, by the late 20th century is completely um becomes completely irrelevant. It's another carbohydrate that you can use as stuffing that you can use in, you know, a range of dishes that you might make, and it's a fascinating story because couscous is back to the 19th century in journalists. In what journalists are writing, and that you know, and it's mainly travel literature that's sort of being published in short excerpts in the press, where couscous comes in the 19th century to be one of the foods that represents the Arab for Americans. It's a metonym um, of, of, you know, when you're talking about Arabs, you can talk about couscous. Um, And usually at that point, you know, authors explain what it is. They offer a brief sentence explaining. They don't assume that their readers are going to understand what couscous is. And the watershed for couscous in many ways comes during the Second World War, when there are a lot of American servicemen who are posted in North Africa, and one of the most fascinating things about um, Craig Claiborne, um, because Cla- Craig Claiborne, uh, you know, writes about couscous uh, throughout a, a number of times throughout his his career, and he, uh, it's one of his one of his earliest pieces when he becomes food editor for the Times, one of his earliest pieces in 1957 includes couscous. And in that piece, he compares couscous to, um, he's talking about stews, winter stews. So very unexotic in a way, but he it talks about French stews and he talks about Moroccan stews with couscous and in that article he's in this is in 1957 the Mediterranean frame is not in his mind at all he's talking about French stews on the one hand as one thing and Moroccan stews as the exotic delicious other um uh Kind of kind of stew, but one is exotic and one is not. So so the Mediterranean, the idea of including the Middle East and North Africa, of including Moroccan couscous within a Mediterranean space that is shared, is is really not at all present in in his conception. Now, fast forward to the 1980s, and he's reviewing restaurants. These you know restaurants that he thinks represent you know, great taste, because Craig Claiborne, above all, was a, you know, was an, ab, you know, saw himself as an absolute connoisseur of great taste. And great taste really defined or guided by conceptions of French haute cuisine, which, Amy, I don't need to tell you about, because you have worked on 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 a lot of, uh, you know, what that looked like. Um, and, and, you know, this is a guiding preoccupation of his what is great taste. But there are restaurants in Manhattan in the 1980s that are are dubbing themselves as Mediterranean and embracing this idea uh, and and are sort of presenting an haute cuisine of you know, French dishes and couscous and, you know, let's get the French, fancy French sorbet um, and let's make a little palm tree decoratively on the plate because that will sort of point at the, you know, at, at the, at, you know, at, at, at the southern parts of the Mediterranean, you know, the southern shores of the Mediterranean. Um, and so, so couscous because the, the the conception of couscous has changed and has entered into this oat cuisine space of of, um, of, of 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 French taste or sort of French ish taste that is one of Claiborne's preoccupations couscous enters into that oat cuisine world but what's fascinating about Claiborne and I, I just want to get this story in there is that uh, in Claiborne was one of those, I mentioned the American servicemen who were posted in North Africa during the Second World War, and Claiborne was in fact one of those. He was with the American Navy, and his own experiences, so he was introduced to French cuisine while in Morocco, uh, which was then under French rule, and so he was introduced both to couscous and to French cuisine at the same time in Morocco, this his experience is very much a colonial experience of these foods, and I I think in some ways shape his conceptions um, uh, for much of his career because he has both this uh, you know real interest in you know French haute cuisine and taste, but he's also quite a you know curious um, explorer of a variety of ethnic cuisines. And, um, you know, and, and I, and I, I think this moment in North Africa during the second world war was quite foundational in his own conception of, 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 of couscous. So that's, that's one part of the story of, you know, how does, you know, what is the story of couscous, um, uh, in America, and it's kind of a, a, a story that has this haute cuisine flavor to it. It's fancy food. It's, it's, it's not necessarily the food of you know the ordinary folks. Uh, so that's one side of it, and I want to get to the side of it that is actually the peasant side of it, um, uh, it which I think is another important part of the story of, of 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 couscous within the context of the Mediterranean.
2: Yeah, I think I think that let's definitely talk a little bit about the the peasant part of it. And as we talk about the that one thing that I am very interested in, and I wonder if you could speak to this at all is what I find very fascinating about Americans who consume couscous of whom, again, because I think possibly because I interact with a lot of people that are very interested in the Mediterranean diet, um, is that people don't actually even know what it is in terms of, they know vaguely it's a carbohydrate. They don't know anything about how it's produced. And it's actually a very complex process to make couscous. But I feel like that has not, that's been lost in translation for sure in the move from North Africa to the United States. So yeah. How does it work in a peasant context in, um, North Africa, but then also what has it become now? Is it a purely industrial product? Uh, Anyway, I just was wondering what you might be able to say about that. Sure. Well,
3: I I mean, and I, I think this is, so, um, so I'll pick up the, 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 the industrial product angle of it, which is of course, you know, I mean, like part of modernity and, and often uh, what, what people are looking for when they are seeking something uh that is uh i mean we have this concept of authenticity and often what uh uh i think you know north americans of many different types but many even when people are seeking authentic um forays into the foods of other cultures is that they are looking for um Experiences that don't feel industrialized. Um, and so I, I like that comment that you've made about industrialization is that has this become simply another like you know macaroni in the boxes on the shelves in the grocery store? Um and one of the things that I think is so I, I traced out a bit of this kind of oat cuisine kind of colonial experience uh, strand of, of, of couscous, uh, which is sort of one kind of strand. But w- what's interesting and confusing about, you know, this whole concept of Mediterranean cuisine, Mediterranean diet is that there's also the opposite narrative that actually Mediterranean cuisine uh, is, is peasant cuisine. I quoted Molly O'Neill earlier. I'll quote her again. One of the things she said, you know, about Mediterranean cuisine, it's food for the poor, something like that. It's peasant cuisine, and um, as the arguments about nutrition and health were sort of, uh, you know, percolating around, one of the those who were interested in the in the cultural side of the of of this whole project, one of the things that they that one of the themes that um, food writers picked up was the idea that actually, you know, this, this cuisine, this Mediterranean diet, what actually makes it healthy, you know, yes, the scientists can do their thing and say how it's all healthy, but actually these are authentic ancient traditions, which of course they're healthy because they've been passed down you know through the generations they are they've they've kept the peasant classes of the Mediterranean uh, healthy you know low these many years and um, that this is you know that 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 this is um, this is one of the ways that uh, that some authors and I put, you know, I, we can talk about Paula Wolfert here, who is who is one of them, who uh, is commissioned by an organization called the Old Ways Preservation Trust, whose goal was to sort of bring to to to, to place a frame or a narrative of ancient traditions, rediscovering ancient traditions. Uh, over this nutritional mediterranean diet so yes you know the mediterranean diet science has now backed it up but if you know what we can actually go back and look at these ancient near ancient traditions and they were healthy all along uh, because they've been developed over you know all these all these years and there's a a fascinating moment in the early 90s when Paula Wolfert was commissioned by Old Ways to go to Tunisia and to do sort of a culinary tour and to report back about uh, sort of what she discovered and couscous was obviously a big part of this tour and and here she was you know sh- she was getting into I, I mean she's, she's a sort of meticulous researcher and she was interested in uh, you know in, in one city that she was visiting she really wanted to get this uh, you know local recipe you know sort of the most famous recipe for couscous and greens and she was able to you know get it from a local museum curator who had got it from her grandmother who presumably had got it from her grandmother um, and and so and that was narrated both by wolfert herself when she reported this uh, in the press and also by um, um uh, Jeffrey uh, Steingarten, who was traveling with her, who reported it in Vogue. So there were, you know, at least two articles about this particular trip, both of which really leaned into the sort of detective work to discover, you know, this really great recipe for couscous. But, and so, you know, for for certain kinds of authenticity seekers, that, that was really what, you know, what was important. But at the same time, what I like about what Paula Wolfer does is that she also reports on she you know she she visits a couscous factory this isn't now an industrialized food and it's not that uh, uh, I mean one of the things that happens sometimes in the peasant narratives and uh, or in 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 some of these narratives is is that this is that uh, there's a sort of essentialized static quality to the cultures that is, Um, Either implied or explicitly stated, you know, these people have been making this food for this way for thousands of years. And you get this image reading this that, you know, these cultures have not evolved for thousands of years. And um, but in fact, you know, cookbook authors and I would I mean, I think Claudia Roden is another who who really respects the evolution of these cultures, uh, who is not essentializing and and not making them static as if they are removed from culture. And so when Wolfert reports on, oh, yeah and, you know, having visited the the couscous factory, um, that, you know, this is a food that has undergone industrialization and it, there are industrial production lines and those are based not just in North America, but, you know, in Tunisia. And, and so this is a, this is also a food that, uh, even though it's part of the Mediterranean diet and it, you know, the recipes come from the grandmothers, there's also, uh, there's also, you know, this is, this is a food that has experienced modernization, so to speak
2: yeah you know, I think that one of the things that you you're really talking a lot about to me, you you started about saying that you were really interested in the stories, but particularly like the telling of the stories and how you can understand better understand people's everyday lives by the stories that they tell and I think that one of the points that you're getting at here which is something that I see over and over again and definitely I think you you bring this up in the case of the Mediterranean region and and people in the United States is there's also the stories we want to tell um, and and those to me are so fascinating you know why do we want to tell the stories of other cultures being, in a sense, more pristinely connected to a peasant tradition, versus whatever it is that we understand as the stories we don't really want to tell ourselves about the losses of certain things in our own culture and our own cuisine. So, um, and I think couscous is is such a great example of that. I will tell you that I went to an Old Ways conference in 1995 or 1996 when they were really pushing uh, this, uh, using, uh, I think Jeffrey Steingarten was there. Nancy Harmon Jenkins was there. I think Paula Wolfert was there. And, and what, and one thing that I think, again, in the stories we tell or the stories we want to tell is the extent to which, um, that particular organization and the people they were working with at that time, you know, they understood themselves as being helping people, you know, and, uh, <laughs> helping those who couldn't help themselves in a way with food, which is a classic storytelling that happens around health. And especially, I don't know in Canada, but it definitely in the United States. Um, So there's just a lot, I think for all of the listeners, there's a lot of richness, so much richness in this article. Um, As you can see, just from all the different levels of conversation that Jennifer and I are having, Um, I'm going to ask you just one last question specifically about the, article, and then I am I wanted to just ask you something at the end, is one thing that you do do um, in the article is also try to bring forward the stories of those who were not necessarily the storytellers, but the people who were from the Middle East who were in the United States uh, trying to, in a sense, bring Middle, East, Middle Eastern or Mediterranean cuisine as it was experienced by them to Americans. So I wondered if you want to talk a little bit about uh, some families that you profiled um, and they had bakeries and restaurants, anything you would want to say about them?
3: Definitely. Cause I, I, I think that what, I mean, I'm fascinated by what you say about old ways and actually now I think after this, I, I need to come and interview you about your experience at that conference. Um, <laughs> but I, I think one of the real, you know, problems and it's, 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 it's a, it's a problem for me, even in this article that, you know, that I, that I wrote um, is the erasure of that in, in, in talking about this world of food journalists and food writers, it's often hard to locate the Middle Eastern people themselves and their stories, you know, sometimes get a bit lost and, or even totally erased. And, um, and so although, you know, this, um, uh, so I wanted to, bring in briefly, and this is, like I said, part of a larger project. So those, the the stories of the Middle Eastern diaspora, members of the Middle Eastern diaspora will come in much more into the larger project. But I wanted to point at some of those stories and point at the ways that, um, that, that members of the Middle Eastern diaspora were using the frame of Mediterranean. So what kind of opportunity did this represent? And what, what how did they themselves feel about this term? Did they want to claim this term? And what I found was that there were, there were indeed people who did families who owned businesses who did want to claim this term and that the reasons for doing so were, you know, because people are complicated and they're not all the same. And these reasons were quite, were quite different. And one example, um, uh, I, one example was a woman named Andre Abramov, who was um, an Egyptian Jew, had come out of, of Egypt. Um, and had set up a restaurant in New York City, um, and it, it, not just a restaurant, restaurant and cooking school. And so her cooking school was featured frequently from the 1970s through the 1980s. It was featured in reviews of restaurants and reviews of cooking schools because there were both. You know, there were all, there were frequently columns that were reviewing cooking classes, and. You know, one of the challenges for someone who a lot of the food was was definitely would have been understood as either Egyptian or Middle Eastern, um, although she included, you know, uh, you know, some some, you know, Italian and French foods, as Southern Fran- French foods as well, um, but was trying to figure out how to market um, to, to sort of market herself because the um, you know, her restaurant uh, was, was, was called Andre's. And so she was marketing herself and her family. Um, and what were the labels that she could use that would, that would comfortably apply when, when marketing to an audience that really, you know, probably did not understand the, 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 the religious the ethnic the linguistic diversity of the Middle East uh, you know off you know that there's a sort of notion that the, the Middle East is a kind of Arab Muslim monolith and so if you're uh, an Egyptian Jewish restaurateur and you have a family business and cooking school how do you how do you how do you market yourself um, and so Mediterranean you uh, that word Mediterranean appeared in, you know, in, in the, the little adverts that she ran in the New York times with the themes that had kind of become iconic of Mediterranean cooking. And so that became a handle that uh, she could assume her, patrons and clients could understand and then she could you know to the extent that they were interested do further storytelling and she quite actively shared her background with journalists and tried to you know get that into the press but as a first level handle there was this word mediterranean which um i think she rightly believed enabled people to understand what kinds of foods she might be serving there's another example which um uh which I can mention. Um, and I actually, since writing this article, I was actually able to interview some members of this family. This is the the Mediterranean bakery and cafe, which is in Alexandria, Virginia. And this is a family run business that was established in 1977 is still a family run business. It's a very cool place. I encourage, uh, I encourage listeners to go visit it if you end up in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, and they called themselves the Mediterranean Bakery, and, and in 1977, um, you know, the, they were sort of early in adopting this term. They themselves clearly, you know, were, were representing a quite a, a sort of what we might call, you know, an Arab-themed um uh, sort of public representation that they had you know flower waters i mean their their core business was pita pita bread getting good pita bread and they had you know the 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 oven and they told me a, a, you know one of the one of the stories in the family lore is how the first brick oven that the initial founder built you know it collapsed and so then they had to rebuild it and this is a story that is now clearly you know in the famous family lore so making pita was was the was the core thing that started this this bakery, um, uh, but that they talked about themselves very much in terms where they were making their own their their Arab Lebanese identity really clear. But what's fascinating is that and they have Arabic text within their logo, which I didn't realize until I went to actually visit the store. So it's called the Mediterranean Bakery in English, but the Arabic text, which is in the center of the lo- uh, of of the logo, is actually. Arab bakery. So the Arabic text calls it the Arab bakery. The English text calls it Mediterranean bakery. And I I had sort of surmised, or one of my hypotheses was that one thing, you know, was, was that using the term Mediterranean was a way of trying to veer away from some of the, you know, very, very pervasive negative stereotypes of Arabs. Um, that were, you know, um, you know, extraordinarily prevalent, and you know, caused many Arab Americans just to feel like they didn't want to represent their culture at all for, for fear of various kinds of of recrimination, um, and. Um, so, you know, I, 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 you know, and that using Mediterranean in English was was a way of kind of veering away, was trying to deflect some of that negativity. Um, and when I asked them about it, that was that was definitely part of it. But it was also part of, you know, wanting, you know, they said, well, you know, we could have we we could have said Lebanese, we could have said Lebanese bakery. But, you know, we didn't want to signal to Arabs from other countries that this wasn't inclusive. So there was this interesting uh, sense of wanting to be inclusive of nationalities beyond Lebanese, which their family was wanting to be inclusive of other, um, you know, of, of other Arab families, um, and also to avoid some of these kinds of negative, um, negative stereotypes. And I, I think it, in that sense, it represented a kind of opportunity for the family um, that that you know that that has persisted. They have not changed the name of that bakery they've they've they they, they, they continue to use that that name to this day um, you know although they themselves are you know really you know there were other kinds of options um, available.
2: yeah um I, th- I think this is a, a great way for us to close. Uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I think that again, one of the things that you're pointing out, in this article is how complicated is the relationship between people, cuisine, and geography? Um, Because there are so many other contexts, political, historical, sociological, that are sort of informing all of the things that happen. and so there's just such a richness to trying to unpack something as seemingly simple as, you know, some cookbooks from the 1960s and 70s by people like uh, Elizabeth David and uh, Paula Wolford and Claudia Rodin. Um, so when you sa- just said in closing, uh, when you say the larger project, is this larger project going to be looking at food in, in other ways uh, in relation to the Middle East or the Mediterranean region?
3: Um, so, so yeah, the, the, the project is really to look at narratives of food and I'm particularly interested in, in narratives of the, you know, where, of the political economy of food, uh, over the 20th century in North America. So Middle Eastern and North African foods quite broadly defined. So actually beyond the Mediterranean as well, not it's a, including, um, including Iran um, and a sort of a broadly defined um, Middle East and North Africa as it you know as as those foods manifest and the stories that are told both by members of these different diaspora communities um, from the Middle East and North Africa and by some of the you know the more mainstream press outlets um, and and what those what those stories teach us about um, you know, about, about, about the Middle East relative to North America and about, you know, more particularly the, the, the lived experience. I'll come back to the embodied experience, the embodied experiences of um, people who are living the reality of, of those stories as framing uh, a lot of their daily lives.
2: Oh, that's great. Well, I, I for one, I'm looking forward to uh, reading more from you, Jennifer. So thank you so much for joining us. And again, listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. And for more details, visit gastronomica.org. So this brings us to the end of our summer season of the Gastronomica podcast. And we'll be back this fall as we talk with authors from our next issue, 22.3. Thank you.
1: The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.